The kefir culture is so easy to keep at home, so easy to care for, and the complex diversity of microorganisms living in it allow the kefir culture to serve as a sort of universal cheese-making starter culture for preparing almost any style of cheese, from uh, camembert to brie to blue cheese to alpine-style cheeses, cheddar, even creme fraiche cultured butter and yogurt can be made with it all. You know, my experiences with uh, with kefir are inspired by, you know, the, the ecological approach to farming that I take and, you know, vice versa. Um, like seeing the, the diversity of kefir and recognizing that it's its strength really brings together a lot of different philosophies in a lot of different areas and it, it's validating and amazing to see that this culture works in such a way that the diversity is its strength and allows it to work in the way that it does. Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. And I'm Devin Sampson. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of food, including farmers, chefs, artists, and activists. On the second season, we bring you in-depth conversations with some amazing people who work with food in incredible ways. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just search for Delicious Revolution and you'll find us. Our website is deliciousrevolutionshow.com, where we have pictures, links, and more information about all the people on our show. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by Satori Travel. If you're a traveler, and especially if you're thinking about going to Mexico or Japan, you've got to check it out. They offer unique guidebooks, custom-tailored trips, and a concierge service for planning your next great adventure. Find out more at satorisatori.com. David Asher is an organic farmer, a farmstead cheesemaker, and a cheese educator based in the Gulf Islands of British Columbia, Canada. He's a guerrilla cheesemaker, so he doesn't make cheese according to the standard industrial philosophies. He explores traditionally cultured, non-corporate methods of cheesemaking. David offers cheese outreach to communities near and far with the Black Sheep School of Cheesemaking. Through these workshops in partnership with food sovereignty-minded organizations, he shares his distinct cheesemaking style. His workshops teach a cheesemaking method that's natural, DIY, and well-suited to the home kitchen or artisanal production. He's the author of the book, The Art of Natural Cheesemaking. You can find it anywhere. In this episode, David talks with me about raw milk, kefir cultures, and how diversity makes cheese and food systems resilient. So I'm here today with David Asher, and I just spent all day with you at a cheesemaking workshop here in Healdsburg in Sonoma County. I learned a ton. There were some things like making yogurt that I've tried before, but a lot of cheesemaking um, that I had no idea how it was done. And also that I, I think I think you've developed some of these techniques, the, the, these unique ways of making cheese at home. I just wanted to start off asking you about what's important about making cheese at home. <laughs> so making cheese at home is all about taking back our culture, uh, literally taking back the, the, the culture of our food. Um, uh, cheese is a, is a very cultured food and uh, traditionally it invoked all these wonderful bacterial cultures that people kept at home. Um, through letting their raw milk sour, um, through invoking the natural microorganisms present in raw milk. Um, this cultured food prepared at home is, uh, you know, was traditionally a huge part of our culture and, um, uh, cultures around the world continue to make dairy at home as part of the regular, you know, regular part of their routines. Um, 
uh, you know, folks in, in, in France, in the Middle East, across Africa, across Southern America, uh, make cheese at home the same way we, you know, we, we cook. It's just a, it fits into the, to the rhythms of daily life. But here in North America, we're kind of, uh, we're kind of separated from that. Uh, we're a couple of generations removed from uh, traditional cheese making. We haven't been making it at home because we're intimidated by the idea of working with dairy. Uh, we're afraid of letting raw milk sit out and clabber. Uh, we're conditioned to fear for our dairy that you know raw milk is a source of a source of illness and fear, um, and we need to pasteurize and sterilize. Um, but none of that none of that is is true. None of that is real. Um, it's all. Uh, it, just this, this, this made up way that we've created in North America, uh, that, um, that, ha- that has no bearing on, on, on what milk really is. And milk is a, is a beautiful, healthful, uh, substance when it comes from well, way, well raised, healthy, pastured animals. Um, when we get milk from a good source, we can be assured of its, uh, of its health healthfulness and its uh, its goodness we don't need to pasteurize it uh, in order to work with it we can make cheese with it safely at home uh, we can take back our cheese making from the corporate forces that have really taken it away from us and have done all sorts of nasty things with like this most favorite food of ours using genetically modified rennets to coagulate the curd using uh, freeze-dried corporate cultures raised in different uh, distant laboratories in denmark um, we have lost so much in our cheesemaking uh, in North America. Even our you know, artisanal cheesemakers are doing things in an industrial way. Home cheesemakers who use the standard approaches are doing things according to methods that you know they may not feel so happy about if they knew the full story. And uh, traditional cheesemaking methods have essentially been lost, and I'm really working to, to revitalize those methods and encourage people to, to take back these uh, these techniques that were once a part of our daily lives, but that have been lost, uh, to reclaim these traditional cultures that uh, could form an important part of our of our of our lives and of our diets. Awesome. Well, let's let's talk. Well, I I guess one of the things that I haven't heard is there um your story of how you started making cheese. Mm-hmm. I heard it coming in and out of the workshop a little bit, but I, yeah, I didn't yeah. talk about it too much in class today. Um, but I, yeah, I had no idea I would be a cheesemaker. Um, few cheesemakers in North America do. It's something that we, you know, we fall in love with later in life. Um, uh, something we discover. And in my case, uh, I discovered cheesemaking uh, entirely by chance by visiting a farmer one day who was making cheese at home with milk from her, you know, from her, with raw milk from her own goats um, and making these inspired, beautiful cheeses that she was creating in her home and aging in like a broken down old refrigerator that she'd modified the thermostat on to create the right conditions and to age these beautiful rounds of moldy, moldy blue cheeses. And you know, I, I visited this cheesemaker on a, on, a, on a cycling trip when I was going out exploring uh, opportunities in farming, looking to decide if it was a livelihood that I was interested in. And I came across this this farmer and a beautiful farm and her amazing cheeses. And um, uh, after tasting her beautiful cheeses and seeing, you know, how much her love transferred from her to the animals to her cheeses, uh, I was really uh, moved by the methods and by the fact that she just made this amazing food in her own home without any specialized tools or equipment. Uh, and it seemed totally, entirely possible. Um, and uh, I took that spark with me back home and decided to try my hand at uh, making cheese on my own. I was really into food in all ways at the time, like really excited about gardening, about growing, about baking, about fermenting. 
um, about cooking and uh, cheese making just fit right in. And it started uh, occupying a lot more of my interest and a lot more of my energy. Um, I really got uh, amazed by the transformation that milk goes through. It's one of the most remarkable, remarkable foods that out, that's out there. Like it's totally adaptable and can, um, uh, can make these uh, transformation to, into all sorts of weird forms and remarkable flavors and textures and colors. And, um, the more I explored it, the more addicted I became. Um, and I was, you know, I was living in the city at the time, you know, gardening, being involved in community farms. Um, but it was, uh, getting involved in cheese making that you know, encouraged me to go out and, and like really seriously farm because I wanted to get access to good milk to, uh, to use to make cheeses with. And at, at the time when I was living in the city, it was really difficult, really challenging to gain access to good, you know, wholesome pastured raw milk. And so I, I ended up leaving the city and doing an apprenticeship and, uh, getting, uh, more and more involved in dairying and cheese making. You kind of have to know somebody to get your hands yeah. on raw milk, right? You do. And, uh, you know, my first taste of, of raw milk, uh, came from a, a pair of raw milk farmers, uh, on a neighboring island to the island that I was, that I was apprenticing on. And they were, uh, Episcopalian priests, uh, who would come and minister on our island. And, uh, when they came to, del- came over by speedboat to deliver their sermon, they'd also deliver, uh, raw milk from their small herd of, uh, of goats, um, and uh, they delivered it in these, you know, two-liter plastic pop bottles that they obviously, you know, reused, recycled, recovered, and it, uh, you know, um, it was it was really something else to me. Um, uh, it was I was like a, you know, I didn't get my revelation from going to their sermons. I got my revelation from seeing these clergy, you know. Uh, selling uh, an illicit substance in Canada, the sale and distribution of raw milk uh, to the public is illegal. And the very fact that the, you know these priests were were dealing with raw milk just totally blew my mind and um, uh, made me realize that you know raw milk is uh, is something something really to to worship. Um, and uh, you know they realized it was something that was really important for their community and in a you know a place of influence that they were they were really eager to encourage people to um uh to to gain access to this food that was essentially being you know this this amazing food that was essentially being kept out of our out of our reach um it's funny that priests introduce you to raw milk because one of the one of the places that we have gotten raw milk around here in sonoma county is from a from a um hindu ashram that oh. is one of the main providers of, of, of raw milk around here yeah so yeah let, let's talk a little bit about kefir or kafir or however you pronounce yeah, it so yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter yeah. it's the same culture all right uh, kefir kefir it doesn't yeah. matter was that did you just discover that before you started making cheese or or after it's at the center of your cheese making process yeah kefir or kefir forms the basis of my of my cheese making process it is the culture that is, has inspired my cheese making and it is uh, an unreal culture it's almost it's almost hard to believe that this thing exists uh, if you have a you know basic under, basic understanding of microbiology it seems so uh counterintuitive that this that this that this being could ever possibly be. Um, it's a, it's not like a single species of microorganisms in this, in this kefir culture, but hundreds of different species of microorganisms living together in this community, this uh, symbiotic community of bacteria and yeast, this scoby as it's called. Um, 
It is like a complex multicellular, multi-species microorganism that thrives uh, simply on milk. And you feed it milk and the culture is happy and it feeds and uh, the culture transforms that milk into kefir, uh, which is a, a remarkably flavorful probiotic effervescent beverage. You strain the kefir grains out of that uh, fermented kefir, you put them into some fresh milk and they ferment that fresh milk into more kefir and you can continue that on essentially forever. And this culture has been cultured forever, like literally five or 6,000 years. This culture has been passed down from generation to generation. People have valued it for, you know, and venerated it for many, many different reasons. And the culture has, you know, continued to be kept to this day. And I've been keeping it for a decade or so, really. Uh, I've been charmed by it. I think that the culture has been slowly taken over my, my brain. Um, and I've been, um, uh, uh taking this culture and uh, sharing it uh, with folks all over. Every time I give a workshop, I share kefir grains with everybody who's interested today. I shared, you know, kefir grains with 13 or 14 interested students. And I do that, you know, almost, you know, you know twice a week. And, uh, the kefir culture is, uh, so easy to keep at home, so easy to care for. And, uh, the complex diversity of microorganisms, uh, living in it allow the kefir culture to serve as a sort of universal cheese making starter culture for preparing almost any style of cheese from, uh, camembert to brie to blue cheese to alpine style cheeses, cheddar, uh, even creme fraiche cultured butter and yogurt can be made with it all. Amazing. And, and this, this isn't a, you know, I'm not, there's not a lot of cheesemakers that make cheese starting with that culture. No, no commercial cheesemakers use it. There might be one or two in North America who use it in their cheesemaking operation. But by and large, cheesemakers who make their cheese use these uh, packages of freeze-dried starter culture, like packaged yeast you might buy in the grocery store. Uh, but these packaged freeze-dried starter cultures, by and large, come from uh, a company called Danisco that's a subsidiary of uh, DuPont, now Dow DuPont. And, you know, purchasing these packaged starter cultures is essentially... Um, you know, supporting the, the, the corporate interests that are taking the, you know, the, the power away from farmers and artisans all across North America. So it goes, it's totally counterproductive to be, you know, making cheese using these cult, you know, these purchased corporate cultures. Right. And that, that's what I bought online when I had it, when I had, right. when I was raising goats, right. right? And making, sell you to do. yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so the, the one difference is that, you know, it's an input that you have to buy from yeah. a corporate source. And another one is that, is the, huge difference in, in diversity of organisms. I mean, Chelsea and I do research about biodiversity and how that helps farmers in Southern Mexico get through hard times and hurricanes and droughts and that kind of wow. thing. Um, um, so I, I was thinking about when you were talking about the biodiversity and kefir and how resilient that makes the cheese making process. I was thinking a lot about the corollaries between those things. Right. It fits yeah. right in. Like in my, you know, my experiences with, uh, with kefir are inspired by, you know, the, the, the ecological approach to farming that I take and, you know, vice versa. Um, like seeing the, the diversity, uh, of kefir and recognizing that it's, it's its strength really brings together a lot of different philosophies in a lot of different areas and it, it's validating and, uh, and, uh, amazing to see that this culture works in such a way that the diversity is its strength and allows it to work in the way that it does. I, I made a note during your workshop today that, um, um, that you talk about kefir like almost like this mythical creature. Its origin is a little bit unknown. Oh, yeah, right? Um, and at the same time, it's this really simple, low-tech way of making food. 
Yeah. So the, and the culture is, is something that you can, that you can so easily keep, you know, you feed it milk every day. It feeds you back kefir. It's like a sourdough starter culture just for dairy that forms these little granules that are, that are so easy to care for that are kind of cute and endearing and fun to play with. Um, and, uh, you know, um, the culture itself is so, uh, so easy to use as a cheesemaking starter culture and so adaptable, it's almost hard to believe that it's real because cheesemakers who, who make cheese with these packaged starter cultures have to buy dozens of different packages for making dozens of different styles of cheese. Uh, they cannot, you know, keep the starter cultures. They have to buy new ones every single time they make cheese. Uh, they cannot propagate them themselves. Uh, they have to, you know, create perfectly sterile conditions uh, in order for the cultures that they purchase from these packages to propagate. Because if they're not perfectly sterile, the cultures will be invaded by uh, unwanted raw milk microorganisms and bacterial phages that will wipe out the bacterial populations. But this kefir culture seems to be resistant to all of that. Like the culture itself, you can use it for any, making any different style of cheese because it has in it all these different strains of microorganisms uh, that cheesemakers buy in packages. You know, the culture is infinitely propagable. You can keep it forever and pass it on to your grandkids and they can keep it forever and do the same. Uh, whereas these package, purchase package starter cultures are, you know, you know, you can't use them more than once. You cannot reuse the cultures because these, uh, sensitive laboratory raised cultures just aren't totally non-propagable, just like hybrid seeds. Um, and, uh, the cultures, uh, this kefir culture, you know, it's, uh, it's a culture that you can like hold and feel in your hand. And it's almost hard to believe that that's actually like microorganisms in that thing, that that thing is alive and uh, full of life and full of possibility. Uh, it's really beautiful and yeah, mythical and un- sort of almost hard to believe. Awesome. Is, um, there's, it seems like there's this, this ethic of, of sharing knowledge about food and sharing cultures that, that are part of, Definitely, I've, I've done sourdough before, and there's this really strong thing about like, oh, you make sourdough dough, like we shouldn't, we shouldn't talk. Yes. And um, um, kombuchas like that, um, seeds are like that mm-hmm. all, all over they the world be. that I've been. They right? are, yeah. In many places, right? Like the the, the culture of our, our seed sharing has been severely hit by by corporate involvement in uh, in in our, in our seed saving programs. And you know, created seed varieties that we cannot keep that we have to you know keep on buying year after year after year to to keep on planting, um, and that was you know not always the way that you you know it used to be seed fairs where people would come together and share all the different uh, seed varieties that would uh, would have saved over the year and uh, they would have exchanged varieties with other farmers they would have um, uh, shared the, the you know the projects that they were working on all these interesting new varieties that they were developing that were persistent to illnesses that were rampant and you know, like that the culture around fermented foods is very similar. People come together for culture swaps where they share and where they share cultures and they share stories and experiences and encourage each other all around the table. Um, and, you know, that's not the way it is in cheesemaking. Cheesemakers are very protective of their methods. The, um, uh, the, the cultures have been totally corporatized and you're not, you just can't share them with one another. But, you know, once upon a time, that's, that's the way it was. Um, uh, the culture, you know, freely flowed. People kept kefir grains and shared them with their family, their friends, their neighbors. Um, these kefir cultures, you know, that, that I keep and I use in my cheese making have been kept and passed down from generation to generation. They were never hoarded. Um, they're never privatized. Um, and the culture is, you know, totally approachable to anybody who's interested in keeping it. Um, one of the things about that I liked during your, your workshop was this idea that 
you did a lot of experimenting to figure out how to make these cheeses. And, but like, there's a lot of like of new that you were trying to figure out, but that was also infused with this idea of like looking back at some, at some, um, some traditional ways of doing things. Um, could you, there was one story I really liked about, about trying, hearing this old Georgian story about how to clobber milk. Can you tell that story? <laughs> um, so I, I was searching for traditional methods of making yogurt. Um, and the way typically people make yogurt is they, uh, in order to make yogurt, you need yogurt. You need to um, get a scoop full of yogurt, full of live active yogurt cultures, and use that as a starter culture for making yo- making more yogurt. And typically, yogurt makers today, um, it wasn't always this way, but typically yogurt makers today um, will um, either buy commercial yogurt they bought at the grocery store in order to make their own yogurt, um, and the uh, or they'll purchase freeze-dried packaged cultures from cheese-making mm-hmm. supply shops and use those starter cultures for making their yogurt. Uh, but once upon a time, people kept, you know, people propagated uh, the culture of their yogurt making. Uh, they kept these cultures at home. They used them over and over again. And in using the cultures over and over again, they assured uh, the health and viability of their of their culture uh, just by being involved with it. Um, and, you know, I... <clears throat> I... In my explorations of, of cheesemaking, I always, you know, question the origin story. Like, I always I always go there for, for inspiration. Like, uh, my uh, inspiration for discovering blue cheese came from, you know, discovering how to propagate the blue cheese fungus came from uh, uh, hearing about traditional the, the traditional origin story of where blue, you know, blue cheeses came from. Um, and in the case of yogurt... Um, I wondered where the original yogurt culture came from. Like, where did the first yogurt makers get their yogurt starter culture from? Because yogurt obviously didn't you know, start as yogurt. It must have started as something else. Uh, it must have come from somewhere. The culture for yogurt must have come from somewhere else. Because in the process of making yogurt, you have to cook milk. And you therefore pasteurize the milk before you add back the culture to the cooked milk in order for the yogurt to take on the qualities that it needs. So somewhere down the line, this yogurt, original yogurt starter culture must have come from somewhere else other than yogurt. And there's all these stories that are out there about the origin of yogurt culture um, uh, from different places around the world. There's stories from you know, uh, Finland and Norway about this particular plant called butterwort that people would add to their that people would place in their milk that would uh, cause the milk to naturally curdle, and then that curdled milk would be used as a starter culture for making cheese. But I didn't have any butterwort growing in my bioregion, so I couldn't use that as a starter culture. Uh, uh, I also spoke to a friend who had spent a lot of time in, in Georgia, the, the country, not the state. And Georgia is at the heart of the yogurt-making regions of uh, Eastern Europe. And she told me that in Georgia, they have a sort of origin story about where yogurt came from. And the story is that uh, the original yogurt cultures came from milk that was left out in the pasture on a full moon night to coagulators as a result of the forces of the, of the, of the universe, like concentrating in, in this, in this, in this milk. Um, and, um, that thickened milk, um, was then used. <clears throat> as a starter culture for making yogurt um, and the yogurt thickened up beautifully and um, I was inspired by that story and decided to try it so I took a little bit of my raw milk and I left it out on you know my animal's pasture on a full moon night but it you know it took a few days for it to thicken up and you know eventually it did thicken up uh, kind of as all raw milk does when you leave it out you know to ferment for a certain amount of time and then that thickened raw milk clabber um, 
I took that and I used that as a starter culture for making yogurt. And what do you know, the culture worked. Um, and the more that I used that, you know, reused that, that, that culture for making yogurt, the more active and uh, the more active the culture became, the faster it fermented the yogurt and the better the flavor developed and the better the texture of the yogurt got over time. And uh, it was really beautiful to see that you could just invoke from the, the you know, the raw milk, the appropriate cultures that could help develop just the right textures and flavors that you're looking for in yogurt. And with more and more experimenting, I realized that you could do the same thing with kefir culture. The kefir had it, has in it, you know, very similar microorganisms to raw milk. And if you use kefir as a starter culture for making yogurt, the yogurt will thicken up, you know, very differently than kefir. It will taste very differently too because of the different conditions you create by cooking the milk first and then incubating that uh, you know, inoculated, uh, cooked inoculated milk at 110 degrees Fahrenheit for several hours. That changes the ferment. And uh, the cultures in kefir adapt to the cultures of the higher temperature fermentation and end up turning into yogurt. And the more you, the more generations of yogurt you make, the more uh, those cultures become adapted to the higher temperature fermentation and the more stable that culture becomes. Wow. Yeah. I've always made it using commercial yogurt and figuring that I would get St. Benoit, one that tastes really, tastes really good. Yeah. But yeah, I did notice that it always, after a couple of different times, it wouldn't, it wouldn't it set wouldn't into turn out the same. Yeah. Those, the, the freeze dried package cultures that cheesemakers buy or that are found in, you know, commercial yogurts that people use as starter cultures are non propagable. They cannot keep, they don't contain a diversity of microorganisms in them that's resilient and resistant to unwanted, uh, cultures finding their way in. Whereas traditional cultures were diverse, uh, contain many different cultures in them that prevented the growth of, um, uh, unwanted uh, cultures that could have spoiled the batch. How long has um, has Salt Spring Island been your home? Uh, not very long. I actually just moved there uh, to write this book. Uh, prior to that, I was living on another island, uh, just uh, just nearby, called Main Island, which is a really minor island, a really small island. There's just a thousand people on it. Um, I went to Main Island to pursue a farming apprenticeship and ended up. Uh, uh, ended up staying there after the apprenticeship. I found it to be a really welcoming and uh, supportive community for organic farming. And uh, the farmer under whom I apprenticed uh, gave me a wonderful opportunity to manage his farm for a number of years. And so I, I stayed around on Main Island for a while, um, yeah, farmed there on a small scale, you know, growing uh, produce for, for market, keeping goats and sort of goat cooperative with a number of other young folks on the island um, and uh, using that milk for making cheese, um, using the goat's manure, of course, for growing uh, gorgeous organic vegetables. Um, but um, when I got the um, when I got the contract to write this book, um, it, you know, I realized that I didn't have access to you know enough milk on the island to make the cheeses that I wanted to make for the for the book. They're the only animals. Um, the only milking animals on the island were, you know, the few goats that we were keeping and it just wasn't enough. And so I made the move over to neighboring Salt Spring in part um, um, to have access to better milk, uh, to have access to cow's milk and goat's milk and sheep's milk that I needed uh, to experiment with and, you know, prepare cheeses for the book uh, to be photographed. Um, and... Um, And uh, Salt Spring Island has been pretty good to me. So we met you through Molly and Zach, who Chelsea just recently interviewed for this podcast also. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, were you using 
their milk? Did they That's have any, right. Yeah. So I've I've been involved in the in the in the Bullock Lake farming community, um, which is a you know group of young farmers that kind of collaborate together. Molly and Zach are the farm keepers, um, but they don't. Uh, you know, they, they encourage everyone who's interested in contributing to collaborate on their vision, uh, what their, of what their farm means. Um, and, uh, there's all sorts of people that get involved in all sorts of interesting ways. And they had a, a friend, uh, a neighbor, uh, who was keeping her, her Jersey cows there. Um, and, uh, uh, she was milking the cows on the farm and I was able to get access to that wonderful, uh, raw milk that I used for many of my cheese making experiments and to prepare a lot of the cheeses in the book. Uh, the, you know, the, the community there has been very supportive of what I do and, um, uh, you know, uh, really encouraging and you know a lot of the you know even the, the photographs of the book were taken in molly and zach's kitchen um, because they open you know their world up to so much and i've been you know very grateful um, you know without them you know much of the book uh, as it is would not have been possible awesome yeah we went we went last summer and it was a totally beautiful place mm-hmm. and this feeling that like you're on an island. I mean, I grew up on an island, but it was very close to Seattle. But this is like, you're on an island. And so there's, everybody seems to be doing, playing with how you can, uh, this self-sufficiency yeah. and community sufficiency. Yeah. The island, the island mentality instills in people an interest in, in cultivating their community and, and being responsible for themselves and their neighbors. Uh, in particular with food, people see, uh, very clearly, where their food comes from on island either it's produced on the island or it comes from off island and there's a very distinct difference in, in quality um, from that which is produced on the island and that which comes in from afar um, and uh, a very distinct difference in you know the where your money goes to when you purchase vegetables at the supermarket compared to when you buy you know much nicer vegetables at a farmer's market you know you, you're, you're you're doing business with your neighbor and it's really really uh, wonderful and um uh, it seems as though almost all the islands in the sort of Salish Sea where I farm have a very similar mentality and community. And you know, for the most part, people are very supportive of their local farmers and treat them as heroes because they really are feeding their communities in a way that the, the fairies cannot. Awesome. And you've been, you've been touring a lot doing, um, I imagine promoting the book, also doing workshops that you've done for a long time. Um, I've loved the, detail that you mentioned that about what you bring on this tour can you can, can talk about that <laughs> yeah so i i don't i, I travel quite a bit i've been on the road kind of non-stop since my book was published in july but i you know i've been traveling lots prior to that and I, if anybody ever invites me out to their neck of the wo- neck of the woods to give a cheese making workshop i you know i have a hard time saying no and so i, I you know if i can take time to go out and travel and teach i will and when i travel and teach i tend to travel pretty lightly i usually just take a backpack on my back sometimes i carry a bucket too for uh, i keep all my cultures and my my aging cheeses in um but i, I generally don't take all that much with me when I travel because, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, the belief that, you know, you can, you can improvise cheese making very well. So I don't bring anything in the way of specialized tools or equipment really. Um, but I travel uh, really just with my, my rennet, which is the enzyme that helps coagulate the 
curds out of the way and helps make most styles of cheese making possible. And also with my kefir culture, um, that's the only thing, those are the only two things I really need in order to, in order to make cheese. Like every, uh, when I travel, like everything else, um, everybody already has in their kitchen. So basic cheese making tools and, and equipment are the same, you know, basic che- kitchen equipment that you have in your own kitchen and you can use your pots and, and strainers and, um, and, you know, wooden spoons and, uh, and uh and such for using for making cheeses without having to really make too much investment you all you really need is the kefir culture and the rennet and you know i I bring that along and share that with people as i travel so six months really into it since you've since you've published this book um what are you thinking about doing next well i'm going to continue doing this for a long time i'm loving it um we my my partner Catherine and i anticipate uh two years of traveling and teaching um across Canada, uh, North America. We were invited up to Australia to, to teach and we're going to be going there in March. You know, we foresee traveling and promoting this book for a pretty long time to help assure its success. Beyond that, we, we're not really quite sure. I mean, I'm really seriously into farming, but I realize I, I, you know, I can't do it on my own. I'm interested in farming in community, like joining, you know, the folks at Bullock Lake Farm would be a dream. Um, uh, I realize I can't, I can't do everything myself. Um, you know, I've got certain strengths and other people have others and just really, I've had my best farming experiences farming with others. So I don't really want to invest in my own land and, you know, farm and make cheese there. That's not what I want to do. Like cheese making is just, you know, a small part of my, 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 my farming interest. It's, you know, my cheese making kind of fits into my full circle cheese making philosophy. I'm a serious gardener and I really into keeping livestock. Um, really into cooking and such. And I don't really want to focus full time on cheese making. Like lots of folks ask me if I'm going to start up a, a cheese factory. And I'm like, no, that's just not my, that's just not my thing. I don't want to sell my soul to sell my cheeses. You know, if I, if I, if I, if I were to invest in a commercial facility to making cheeses, uh, the, you know, the amount of capital I'd have to put in in order to create a facility that's up to the standards of production that will allow me to sell to my community. Um, uh, Unfortunately, the, like the loans that I would have to take, uh, in order to produce that facility, which would be in the several hundred, you know, thousand dollar range would, um, indenture me to selling my cheeses across Canada. Like I wouldn't be able to just feed my community cheese. I'd have to sell uh, my cheese across the country. And it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I want to keep it small. I want to keep it cottage, but unfortunately rules and regulations don't allow that sort of thing in Canada. It's, you know, different places they do. Apparently in Pennsylvania, you can make cheese and you know, cottage scale and sell it at the farm stand, which is great, but we can't where we are. Uh, someday, you know, I'd really love to open up a, a cheese making school where people can come and learn with me and get a more involved learning experience. Sure. I love taking, you know, this class on the road and bringing it to people that aren't able to travel, you know, farmers and such who are stuck with their livestock because they're the people who would make the most of this, uh, of these teachings. But, uh, a lot of people would also get a lot of, a lot better of an experience if they came to, you know, my teach, my school where there would be, uh, you know, cheeses in various stages of ripening and development so they could see, you know, the process firsthand and see how the cheeses transform because, in a, you know, in a day-long class, we can only talk about the changes that a cheese goes through, but observing them firsthand would have a very different effect upon the learning experience. Right. Um, as you've been traveling around and teaching workshops, have you noticed a change in how people are thinking about cheese or fermented foods in general? I was just uh, thinking about it. It's been, it's been, it's been a while since 
I started making sauerkraut inspired by Sandy Katz, who wrote the introduction to your book. And, and that's, it seems to me like almost everyone, maybe, maybe there's a thawing going on in our <laughs> obsession. With, it's still, I mean, it's and, still not, it's, it's not universal yet. Like a lot of yeah. people still aren't familiar with, with Sandor Katz and his revo- revolutionary um, fermentary oh. ideas. Um, a lot of people that come to my classes, though, know. Um, they are familiar with the principles of natural fermentation and, uh, they, you know, keep sauerkraut, uh, they make sauerkraut at home. They keep sourdough starter cultures at home and, you know, they've started making cheese and have wondered about, you know, more traditional methods, but they, you know, haven't been able to find resources just like me when I got started. And, um, uh, they are, have been very eager to learn methods like this, but haven't known where to go. And, uh, they're excited that these, that these ideas are out there. So there's a lot of people that come out to classes like that who have just wondered all this time how, how to do it and, you know, made cheese according to the standard way, just like, like, just like you tried, you know, with package starter cultures, but were kind of gave up on the idea because they didn't want to do it that way, but just didn't know how to do it otherwise. And so they've been, you know, kind of empowered by the workshop. But that's kind of a small number of people that come to the classes. Most people who, who come don't have experience with any cheese making whatsoever like most of the people that came to the class today are just um you know when i asked how many people have made yogurt or other fermented dairy products in the class you know, only a few people put up their hands um by and large it seems as though people are interested in in in, in having more of a role in feeding themselves and their families and their communities and you know not necessarily just the fermenters but folks in general are excited about the transformation of of uh uh, they're interested in what you know makes feeding possible. They're interested in, in, in learning more about that process, and they're naturally drawn to the sort of workshops that I offer because they're they're really empowering and encouraging. Awesome! I thought it was too. Like one thing, I mean, I'll definitely make some cheese at some point. But one thing that I know that I'll probably do all the time is uh, my mind was blown by the process of making cultured butter. Yeah. It, was, it was so good. It was so delicious. And it looked fun to make. So I should, yeah. I guess I could explain the process yeah. to your listeners. Um, now the process of making cultured butter is, uh, a, a, is probably the, the, the most beautiful expression of kefir's possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it shows how appropriate a culture it is for making all these fermented dairy products. Mm-hmm. Now when I make my cultured butter, I take my kefir grains, my kefir culture, and I put them into a full fat cream, just a natural, preferably unhomogenized, no additive, uh, cream. You know, the best of course is, you know, raw cream skimmed off of uh, like a pastured animal's milk. Um, you take that cream, you add the culture to it, and you let it ferment at room temperature for about 24 hours. And uh, the kefir culture naturally thickens up that cream into cultured cream, uh, as the French call it, creme fraiche, uh, in about a day. And that thickened creme fraiche is, is delicious and amazing just on its own. Um, uh, you can eat that up by the spoonful as an alternative to, uh, to whipped cream. It's like great on strawberries and baked goods of all sorts. Um, but that creme fraiche can also then be churned into a beautiful cultured butter. And this cultured butter is kind of different than uh, the, you know, the, the sweet cream butter that most of us in North America are accustomed to. Uh, cultured butter is a more European style uh, a butter that's made by first culturing the cream and then churning that cultured cream. Um, and uh, kefir can be used as a starter culture for making that you know cultured cream that can then be churned into a sort of kefir cultured butter. Um, and the culturing process has all these beneficial effects upon the, the butter that's made from this process. Uh, uh, cultured butter ends up 
you know, tasting better than sweet cream butter because the fermentation of the cream brings out all these interesting flavors uh, that people didn't realize could come out in their butter. And not necessarily cheesy flavors, but all these complex um, notes that just seem to come out of seem to come out of this, um, out of the out of the butter after it's after it's made. Um, culturing the cream before you transform it into butter also allows the butter to last longer. The beneficial microbes of the culturing um, protect the butter from becoming contaminated from unwanted microbes, so the cultured butter actually lasts longer than uh, uncultured butter. Um, uh, cultured butter ends up having a higher fat content than, ultra, than uncultured butter. It's actually... Um, uh, actually more buttery than sweet cream butter um, because the the culturing of the cream helps to break down the butter fat particles um, prior to churning and allows the, the butter fat to come together uh, even faster and firmer um, and forms a, a more like buttery butter mm-hmm. and the final advantage of culturing the cream before you churn which is something that is rarely rarely done in north america but it's really common in europe um, is that uh, culturing the cream first breaks down the butterfat particles and allows the butterfat to come together into butter much more quickly. And so typically it might take, you know, 25 minutes to an hour to hand churn sweet cream into butter. If you ferment that cultured butter first, it may only take two minutes for you to churn that cultured cream into butter. And, uh, for people who have you know never seen this transformation happen before, um, doing it by hand, who have just done it in the blender, when um, it takes you know five minutes in the blender, it's amazing that um, this butter can be churned out of the cream in less than a minute, as it happened in class today. You know, we passed the the, the, the container around the class, and you know before it made the whole way around, it separated into cultured butter, and the cultured butter um, was a beautiful creamy color because the animals that produced it were grass fed and the butter was extra flavorful because it was cultured but it also after it was churned still had the kefir grains in it that we had added to the cream when we started the process and um when you then uh you know you you take that butter you strain it of its buttermilk and the cultured buttermilk is delicious and you know totally different product than the fake cultured buttermilk you buy in grocery stores today which is just skim milk cultured with 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 lactic freeze-dried cultures um you take that butter you strain it of its buttermilk and then you take that butter that's like filled with the kefir grains in it um, and you put it uh, into water to wash it. And as you're washing the, the butter, which is a natural part of the butter making process to get the remainder of the buttermilk out, the kefir grains just fall out of the butter um, and end up falling to the bottom of the cold washing water, um, whereas the butter rises to the top. Um, and the butter that you make ends up totally free of kefir grains, and then you can just go into the bottom of that washing water and pick up your, your pile of grains and then take them out and use them to put into more cream to make more cultured butter, keeping that process alive. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely delicious. And I know the the, the real buttermilk is, is pure magic for things like pancakes and waffles. Yes, it's a beautiful ingredient to have in the home and uh, almost worth making butter just for the buttermilk. Awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be making that. David, thanks so much for taking the time to talk through it and for the, for the workshop today. And it's been great. Um, your book is called the art of natural cheese making. It's available everywhere. Where else can people keep up with what you're up to? Oh, with what I'm up to. Um, Hmm. Um, I'm not sure what to say about this. Um, I don't want to incriminate myself in the United States of America. 
um, my, my website uh, has updates as to where I'll be offering classes often. Uh, uh, the black sheep um, I don't want to mention Facebook on the air, so I'm not going to, um, uh, you'll hear in, you know, if you're in touch with your local food community, you'll hear about when I come to town, to your town to offer mm-hmm. classes, uh, I usually get in touch with local food, uh, food sovereignty minded organizations to offer my classes and generally people in those communities that are interested in this sort of thing, find out about them. So, you know, stay tuned to your local, uh, food organizations and, you know, if you want me to come to a community near you, let them know that you know I offer classes as fundraisers for groups like that, and uh, we can collaborate on something and put together a fun cheese making class. Show you how to take back your cheese. Awesome. Um, so we'll have links to the book where you can find the book. We'll have links to your website um, on our our website, deliciousrevolutionshow.com. And uh, thanks so much, David. Great to be here, Devin. Thanks for having me. is a show about food, culture, and place. Produced by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wells. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Of course, you can get in touch with us in lots of different ways, and they are all on the website, deliciousrevolutionshow.com. If you like Delicious Revolution and want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by Satori Travel. If you're a traveler, and especially if you're thinking about going to Mexico or Japan, you've got to check it out. They offer unique guidebooks, custom-tailored trips, and a concierge service for planning your next great adventure. Find out more at satorisatori.com.